Hello and welcome to Aircraft Grade, the podcast all about commercial aviation. I'm your host Alex and coming up this week. London Stansted turns 30, the nuances of regional travel over the pond, Saudi are looking to overhaul their fleet with new efficient jets and two formidable forces come together. Before we take a deep dive into our main topics, let's first round up the key aviation stories from the last week, giving you my opinion along the way. Sean Doyle, CEO of British Airways, has confirmed that the flag carrier will remain committed to the Airbus A380, despite mass fleet retirements around the world. BAS continued to keep their A380s up to date with scheduled maintenance, giving a bit of hope to Airbus fans. In my opinion, it's likely BA will bring the Super Jumbo back, considering the slot constraints they face at Heathrow, having a high-capacity plane is key to their route network. It's been a week for the last of particular aircraft being built, if that makes sense. The last Everett-built 787 Dreamliner, due for delivery to ANA, has begun its test flights. Boeing made the decision to move production away from Everett in October 2020, possibly due to the pandemic or possibly due to the amount of production floors coming out of the plant. Whether or not this is or isn't the case, the factory will now close, with the last jet in its testing phases. The second end of production story is much sadder. The final Airbus A380 to be built has completed its first test flight. Production number 272 has headed to Hamburg to be painted in Emirates colours, the final customer. So production has finished for the Airbus A380, but I don't think it's the fully the end of this beast. I reckon it's still got another 10 to 15 years in service, as I can only imagine the uproar if Emirates were to retire almost brand new jets. And as I've literally just mentioned, it will be key for BA's success in the future. Icelandic air travel has been greatly disrupted by a volcanic eruption, essentially closing Keflavik Airport on Friday. The potential eruption was first discovered by scientists on the 3rd of March, and since then the tremors have just kept increasing. Unlike previous volcanic eruptions, the effect of this recent event hasn't been as dire. Instead of covering the whole of European airspace in volcanic ash, the recent Fagrajafal eruption is just producing a slow flow of lava, and I apologise, I probably completely butchered that uh, volcano's name. Because of this, Keflavik Airport has now reopened. In the year 2018, London's airports handled 177,276,807 passengers across the six locations. London Stansted, the third busiest airport in the city and the fourth in the UK, handled 16% of that total, with 27,996,116 travelling through its terminal. On Monday, the airport celebrated 30 years since it's opened its terminal doors and I wanted to take a look at its incredible story from World War II airbase to Air Force One's London home. London Stansted started life in 1943 as RAF Stansted Mount Fitchett, used in the Second World War by the Royal Air Force and United States Army Air Force as a bomber airfield and maintenance depot. After the Americans withdrew from Stansted, the airport was used by the Air Ministry for maintenance as well as keeping German prisoners of war. The airport was converted into a civilian base in 1949 when it was taken over by the Ministry of Civil Aviation. The runway was extended in 1954 after the news of a possible transfer to NATO, but this news never went ahead. Commercial operations didn't get underway until 1966 when the airfield saw another change of ownership, 
this time being run by the BAA, or British Airports Authority. Holiday airlines loved Stansted, as it was far cheaper than Heathrow or Gatwick, meaning they could offer their passengers lower fares. This jump in demand led to the passenger terminal being extended just four years later, in 1970. In 1978, the Conservative government white paper airport policy proposed a plan to extend Stansted into London's third airport. The BAA proposed the extension plan in 1980. This included a complete terminal overhaul and land being reserved for a second runway should the need arise. The BAA's proposed upgrades would boost the airport's capacity to 15 million passengers a year. This showed some excellent forward planning in my opinion with the option to reserve land for a second runway showing that the planners have thought about how demand for aviation could grow significantly in the future. After the planning permission request was submitted to the District Council in Uttlesford, a public inquiry was launched in 1985. This would lead to 75 MPs opposing the airport's plans. To form a compromise that both parties were happy with, it was decided that Stansted would be developed in phases. Phase 1 would open capacity to 8 million passengers per year, and Phase 2 boosting it further to 15 million. Interestingly, during the time that the negotiations were ongoing, the Space Shuttle 747 landed at the airport in 1983, attracting 200,000 people. This was only the start of the special visits the airport would get over its lifetime. Building work for Phase 1 began in 1986, with the designs formulated by architect Norman Foster. The new building was completed in 1991 and opened by Queen Elizabeth II 30 years ago on March 15th. The first flights weren't operated to the airport until a couple of days later and were a domestic UK air service to Glasgow and an Air France arrival from Paris. The airport struggled to hold down any long-haul services in the early 90s, with American Airlines cancelling a route between Stanton and Chicago after only two years of operation. Despite this, there were still signs that the airport would be a key destination for the South East. The initial success led to Phase 2 of Stansted expansion being given approval by Parliament in 1999. This permission was given alongside the increase in the CAP passenger air transport movement to 185,000 a year. Public consultation began the following year and the local council granted planning permission in 2002 to expand passenger capacity to 25 million passengers, 10 million more than previously planned. A government southeast and east of England regional air services study included Stansted in the future of southeast aviation for at least the next 30 years. Stansted has seen rapid growth since its opening, and not just an increase in passenger numbers. It's been featured in many TV shows and films, including the BBC's Come Fly With Me, featuring as Flylow's home base. It's also been used in the recent Spider-Man Far From Home, and since Barack Obama's first term in 2008, Stansted Airport has been the chosen destination for any US president UK visits. The airport has also grown in the sense of offering new opportunities, in the form of a training and skills academy opening in 2008. Further infrastructure developments were completed in the late 2000s. A £1 million airport fire station upgrade was finished in 2009, and they were also awarded permission to receive Code F aircraft like the Mahusiv A380 and 747-8. These developments, though, were overshadowed by a £40 million construction project to extend the arrivals area of the main terminal, adding more baggage carousels and new immigration and passport halls. 
The 2010s was another big decade for Stansted, with the airport being bought for £1.5 billion by Manchester Airport Group, as well as becoming the first southern base for Jet2.com. Interestingly as well, Antonov Airlines, who operate the Mammoth AN225 and AN124s, chose to use Stansted as their UK office for charter flights, moving in in 2017. When I said the story of London Stansted has been incredible, I really meant it. Although on the surface it's frequently seen as somewhat of a low-cost hub, I think it's so much more than that. Stansted has firmly cemented itself as a force to be reckoned with in the air freight market, as well as being the destination for some of the world's most unique airplanes. Happy 30th birthday, Sansid. Here's to another 30 years. The US's aviation market is vastly different than that of the UK or even the rest of Europe. Regional flying in the US seems to be one phrase for two completely different kinds of flying. There's the more typical regional routes like New York to San Francisco or Seattle to Boston. These kind of flights are very similar to the typical short-haul routes airlines like EasyJet and Ryanair sell at. Then there's commuter routes, which are short interstate hops or flights that passengers tend to use to get to work or lesser demanded destinations. The kind of flights FlyB used to specialise in back in the day. Well, I say back in the day, I really mean like before last year. But why give you this very wordy and overcomplicated explanation of a very simple concept? Well, these two different kinds of flying have some very different regulations across the pond, and it's all to do with subsidiaries. In the US, it's common for airlines to have a main airline for short haul and a regional subsidiary for even shorter, low-capacity routes. To be fair, some European airlines like Lufthansa have a very similar structure to this with their CityLine subsidiary. All three major US carriers, Delta, American and United, have regional subsidiaries to operate these short-haul regional routes. Flown under the names Delta Connection, American Eagle and United Express. However, these regional carriers aren't operated directly by the main carrier. Instead, they contract out regional flying to other airlines like Envoy, SkyWest and Commutair. These regional carriers employ their own pilots and can operate smaller regional jets at a much lower cost than the mainline airlines, as they typically have a much larger fleet and can benefit from economies of scale. For example, the smallest jet that Delta operates is the Airbus A220, with 109 seats. But the smallest aircraft in their regional Delta Connection airline is the Bombardier CRJ200, with just 50 seats, or just under half. The main airline wouldn't be able to operate a plane with this little amount of seats profitably, but the contractor carriers like Envoy Air can. Naturally, contracting out regional flying to smaller carriers is a massive advantage to mainline carriers, as it reduces their costs massively. No less because regional pilots are paid anywhere from half to two-thirds less than their mainline colleagues. However, this has led to a lot of worry coming out of pilot trade union groups who are worried that their employers are contracting too much regional flying out to these regional carriers, leaving them out of work. This has led to scope clauses. Scope clauses limit the number of aircraft that US carriers can fly under their regional subsidiaries. For example, American Eagle can only operate 75% of the total number of narrowbodies operated by the mainline unit. These scope clauses also limit the amount of aircraft in each size category. 
For example, in American Eagle, large regional jets that seat between 66 and 76 passengers are limited to 40% of the number of narrowbodies, while smaller jets make up the remaining 35%. This limit varies between airlines though. United, as an example, can only operate 255 large regional aircraft. But why am I telling you this? Well, that's a very good question. Well, I don't know if you remember last week's episode, but I briefly mentioned that Envoy Air would be taking all six of BA Cityflyer's ERJ-170s to operate for American. Well, what I didn't mention is that American would actually be reducing the amount of seats on board these aircraft, from 76 to 65. But why? Well, so they can be classed in the smaller aircraft category of their scope clause terms. This change, although not ideal for American and Envoy, is a dream come true for passengers, as they get to enjoy more space and comfort. This kind of tactic isn't uncommon, with United also reducing the amount of seats on board some of their ERJ-700s to comply with the strict scope clause. The world of American aviation is definitely complicated, but nonetheless, still very interesting to read and learn about. Normally, I would talk about large aircraft acquisitions or orders in the orders and delivery section at the end of the show, but this week I'm switching it up a bit. There is just far too many juicy details in this order that a quick two sentence summary wouldn't do justice. Saudi Arabia flag carrier Saudia has just announced the signing of a deal worth 3 billion US dollars to finance new planes, the biggest aviation financing deal in Saudi history. The money will go towards paying for the 73 new planes the airline currently has on order. Such a large deal requires the funds of six Saudi banks, and this deal coincides perfectly with the lifting of bans restricting international flights from the state, something that will come into effect in mid-May. It's no surprise in my opinion that Saudi has taken the deal, as they really didn't fare well during the plane apocalypse of 2020 with the country being forced to shut its borders to all travel, including religious travel, which makes up a large portion of their demand. In fact, since 2019, Saudi has already received funding of around 47 billion in government subsidies alone. So what does the 73 strong order book look like then? Well, for Airbus jets, it includes 20 A321neos, 15 A321XLRs, and 30 A320neos for its subsidy flyer deal. Only 8 aircraft have been ordered from across the pond in the form of 8 78710s. These aircraft look to replace their aging fleet of 747s and Airbus narrowbodies. Saudia is focused on a positive and efficient future with its home country keen to boost tourism to over 100 million a year. This deal should help both the country and the airline achieve this feat. going to be honest with you here, this bit of news actually broke last week, before the last episode, but I completely missed it. I've got to thank the Simple Flying Podcast for actually making me aware of this, because oh my goodness gracious me, this could change the face of commercial aviation. But Alex, you're being very vague, what are you actually talking about? Well, the two largest aircraft leasing firms in the world have joined forces. Confirming the rumours, Aircap announced that it had bought out GE Capital Aviation Services, or GCAS, for 30 billion US dollars. This acquisition will make Aircap the largest leasing firm with a portfolio of over 2,000 aircraft and a market share of around 18%, or in other words, absolutely mammoth. 
To put this into perspective, the next biggest leasing firm, Avalon, only holds around a 5% market share in the leased aircraft market. The transaction was primarily made in cash, with an extra £111.5 million paid in Aircap shares. Although Aircap was the buyer, GE would come out of the deal owning 46% of them, with two spots on the board of directors. Aircap is a serial acquisitioner, if that's a word. Well, actually probably not, um, with them having purchased three other leasing firms across the last decade and a half. In 2005, they purchased Air Finance, 2009 saw the takeover of Genesis Lease, and 2013, ILFC. So what does this new, well essentially partnership, yield? GCAS and Aircap will now have a combined fleet of over 2,098 aircraft with around 200 airlines as customers. Another surprise in this acquisition is that Aircap actually went into the deal with the smaller fleet. Despite this, their jets have a higher total value. Aircap's fleet is worth about 50% more than GE's at $29.8 and $19.7 US dollars respectively. Alongside current fleets, the new leasing company has over 500 aircraft on order for new technology types like the A330neo, A320neo, A350, 787, 737 MAX, essentially the more fuel-efficient aircraft. In my opinion, these two companies are a match made in heaven, since according to their websites they both specialise in completely different things. Aircap is the world's largest lesser of A320neos, 787s and Embraer E-Jets, whereas GCAS seem to specialise in the freighter market. They have a successful 737-800 conversion programme and are currently in the process of launching a programme for 737-300 ERSF, basically a 737-300 conversion programme. But GCAS also have large helicopter leasing contracts with the oil and gas industries, search and rescue and emergency response. In my eyes, Aircap will come out of this purchase with such a diverse and completed fleet that they could be unstoppable, and their goals for the future only compound this. Coming out of this, Aircap want to boost their new technology fleet from 56 to 75% by December 2024. Essentially, they want 75% of their fleet to be new technology type aircraft and they want to increase the percentage of narrowbodies on their catalogue from 59% to 66%, also by December 2024. What a formidable force Aircap will be, this is super exciting stuff and has the potential to rewrite history, well, in the aviation market anyway. Now it's time to cover the most important airplane orders and deliveries over the last week. Other than the Saudi order, which I mentioned earlier, the only other order this week has come from Air China, who are on the cusp of signing a deal worth over two billion US dollars to purchase 18 A320 Neos from GCAS, the first non-Boeing narrowbody order from the carrier since 2013. Airbus A320 Neos have been delivered to Shenzhen Airlines, Pegasus, Lufthansa, and Frontier with larger A321 Neos being received by China Southern, Iberia, Viva Aerobus, Wizz Air and Indigo. Embraer E195E2s have been delivered to Binta Canarias and Air Peace, and American Eagle and United Express have taken ERJs. A single 737 MAX 8 has been delivered to American, and a Boeing P8 based off the 737 has been taken by the US Navy. And finally, Amazon Prime Air has received two 767-300 converted freighters. That's all we've got time for today. Thank you for listening to the Aircraft Great Podcast. 
you did enjoy it, please leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast player. If you do enjoy this podcast, please share it amongst your aviation-loving friends and make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at AircraftGrade. I've been Alex. Have a decently average week. Goodbye.